The People's Constitution, the path to empowerment of Australians in a 21st century democracy by Bronwyn Kelly. Read by Bronwyn Kelly. Chapter 6, Part 9, The Constitution as a Barrier to Human Rights. Australia's constitution almost entirely undermines the possibility of its citizens' access to political, civil, economic, social and cultural rights. This is a serious failure that often gets lost in lawyerly debate on constitutional details. But if we step back and look at the constitution from the point of view of equitable access to rights, it is apparent that it locks Australians into a position where human rights are the fiat of their governments and may be arbitrarily withheld at any time, either for the whole population or subsets of it. This arrangement runs absolutely counter to the assertion that rights are universal and inalienable. It runs counter to the Australian government's own policy statement that rights are the self-evidently inherent property of humans, collectively and individually, which cannot be denied by governments. Nevertheless, Australian governments have purported to hold these two utterly contradictory ideas at one time. Australia's policy documents on human rights start with an acknowledgement that, quote, these rights are considered to be inherent, inalienable and universal. Inherent as the birthright of all human beings, enjoyed by all simply by reason of their humanity rather than granted or bestowed. Inalienable in the sense that they cannot be given up or taken away and universal as they apply to all, regardless of race, colour, gender, sexual orientation, gender identity, language, political or other opinion, national or social origin, property, birth, age or disability, unquote. But Australia's constitution comprehends no such thing. On the contrary, every mechanism within it, even the referendum mechanism, is geared towards denial of rights, not confirmation of them, and certainly not remedy for abuses by federal governments. Insofar as the Constitution is either silent on human rights or may contain built-in mechanisms to deny them, Australians are living entirely without protection of their rights in law. They are told that their rights are protected by convention dating back to Magna Carta or by operation of the principle of responsible government or by common law or by the now much vaunted but never defined and frequently not adhered to rule of law. But the reality is that in relation to their rights, the rule of law is non-existent in several states in Australia and unstable on a nationwide basis because federal law can override state law. Rights can be and are being extinguished and abused everywhere in Australia because there is nothing in the Constitution that says they can't be extinguished and abused. The human rights treaties our governments have signed and ratified are not enforceable here. This is a situation that is now dire. In the space of about 40 years, Australia has moved from being a society that could reasonably take rights for granted because it was assumed leaders would act in good faith in the public's best interests in accordance with convention and the common law to one where it must be acknowledged that the law can no longer protect Australians from human rights abuses by the government. As John von Duser observed in 2005, quote, When I went to the law school more than 40 years ago, 
human rights law was not a subject on the curriculum. Lectures we received about the English common law system and the unwritten British constitution led us to believe that the protection of fundamental rights and freedoms would always be the cornerstone of our legal system and that there was no need to reduce those rights to a statutory form. However, things have changed. I well remember an occasion in 1992 when one of my colleagues was about to hear an application by asylum seekers who had arrived in Darwin by boat. At that time, judges in the federal court were granting bail to asylum seekers who arrived unlawfully whilst their claims were processed. On the night before the case was to be heard, the mandatory detention provisions were rushed through Parliament. The protection against detention without trial was removed in one strike. Many other amendments followed to limit the power of the court to do justice according to common law principles. Unquote. So, in 1992, the capacity of parliaments to override human rights by introducing laws that facilitate the exercise of arbitrary power was already being exhibited by Australia's parliaments. From this point, the human rights record of Australia began to plummet, as shown in some of the examples of abuses provided above. This trend of increasing abuse then grew unabated because of our entirely inadequate constitution and in parallel with an argument run by politicians that it should stay that way, that is, silent on our rights. This argument speciously posited that if a charter of rights were to be enshrined in the constitution rather than in a mere act of parliament, it would transfer sovereignty from the elected parliaments to the unelected courts. With sophistry, rather than evidence, it implied that enshrining rights in the constitution would transfer key decision-making powers to the judiciary, and that it was therefore safer to run with a system which gave the last word on legislation to the elected parliaments, who, after all, were, in theory, responsible to the people. The troubles with this are manifold. For a start, parliaments have hardly behaved responsibly on human rights issues. But more than that, the whole argument that it is right for either the parliament or the courts to have the last word on human rights is a nonsense in democracy. In a democracy, it is the people, and only the people, who should have both the first and last word on human rights, and therefore, unless they have a constitution which states what their first and last words are, until they say otherwise, and unless the people can say what line shall not be crossed, particularly in relation to their rights, by the elected when they exercise power, and unless the people can say what would constitute abuse and what would constitute dereliction of duty by the elected, then they are at full risk of exposure to arbitrary power and abuse. They do not have the benefits of a democracy at all. Notwithstanding the completely illogical thinking behind the idea that the abusive potential of parliaments should not be restrained by the Constitution, the Australian judicial establishment was beaten into submission by this tactic over an extended period. Common law protected nothing, and by 2004, the courts signalled complete capitulation when Justice McHugh of the High Court, in the case of Al-Kateb v Godwin, resignedly stated that, Quote, the justice or wisdom of the course taken by Parliament is not examinable 
in this or any other domestic court. It is not for courts exercising federal jurisdiction to determine whether the course taken by Parliament is unjust or contrary to basic human rights. The function of the courts in this context is simply to determine whether the law of the Parliament is within the powers conferred on it by the Constitution. The doctrine of separation of powers does more than prohibit the Parliament and the Executive from exercising the judicial power of the Commonwealth. It prohibits the Chapter 3 courts from amending the Constitution under the guise of interpretation. Unquote. This is one of those landmark moments in the judicial history of Australia. It is a moment that should have taken the breath of Australians away insofar as it implies that they will be left defenceless against abuses of power by unscrupulous and unaccountable parliaments or executive governments, the type that make executive statements to the effect that entering into a treaty does not give rise to legitimate expectations that could form the basis for challenging an administrative decision. It also implies that both the Constitution and the judges who are responsible for interpreting it can offer them no protection. In effect, Justice McHugh exposed the truth that Australia has a constitution that gives parliaments and governments free reign to be unjust. Of course, the judgment did not create much of a ripple outside the small sections of the community that were championing human rights in 2004. But in the 2020s, it stands as a salutary lesson from which it is not too late to learn. As Justice McHugh states, the High Court may be prohibited under Chapter 3 of the Constitution from amending it, quote, under the guise of interpretation, unquote. But this is an argument in favour of enshrining a Charter of Rights in the Constitution. It is not an argument for listing rights in legislation rather than in the Constitution. Since the Al-Kateb judgment, Australians have effectively lost the help and protections that the judiciary could provide them if the doctrine of the separation of powers were properly invoked so that the separation allows both the parliament and the judiciary to exercise their properly balanced share of power in the public interest. This can't happen if the constitution is silent on the obligations of parliaments and governments to uphold and adhere to the treaties they sign and ratify. It can't happen while the power sharing between Parliament and the judiciary is so out of balance as to make the separation of powers useless for its fundamental purpose, protection of the electors from parliamentary or government abuse. Certainly, the courts should not be able to amend the Constitution under the guise of interpretation. But if they can be given a Constitution that actually says what must be upheld in law, then they should be fully able to interpret whether laws made by the parliaments are consistent with the constitution that the parliamentarians should, but currently don't, swear to uphold. The current constitution of Australia states that, quote, in all matters arising under any treaty, the High Court shall have jurisdiction, unquote. In a sensible, human-centred world, this ought to imply that because the Parliament has already ratified human rights treaties, the High Court should at least be able to assume it has jurisdiction not merely to determine whether the law of the Parliament is within the powers conferred on it by the Constitution, 
a function Justice McHugh asserted was valid for the federal courts, but also to determine whether the course taken by Parliament is unjust or contrary to basic human rights, a function Justice McHugh did not think was valid for a federal court under the current constitution, at least in the context of the Al-Khateb case. After all, the human rights treaties to which Australia is a signatory are used as the basis of some laws Australia has made to protect rights. For instance, the International Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Racial Discrimination underpins and is a Schedule II, the Racial Discrimination Act 1975, and the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women underpins and is a Schedule II, the Sex Discrimination Act 1984. As such, lawmakers and judges are well used to interpreting whether parliaments are behaving justly in relation to human rights treaties, and yet judges have felt the need for specific incorporation of treaties into domestic law, or rather, into the actual constitution, before they will exercise the full measure of their judicial power in relation to rights under these treaties. In the Al-Khateb case, Justice McHugh shed some light on why. He said, quote, Eminent lawyers who have studied the question firmly believe that the Australian Constitution should contain a Bill of Rights, which substantially adopts the rules found in the most important of the international human rights instruments. It is an enduring, and many would say a just, criticism of Australia that it is now one of the few countries in the world that does not have a Bill of Rights. But, desirable as a Bill of Rights may be, it is not to be inserted into our Constitution by judicial decisions, drawing on international instruments that are not even part of the law of this country. It would be absurd to suggest that the meaning of a grant of power in Section 51 of the Constitution can be elucidated by the enactments of Parliament. Yet those who propose that the Constitution should be read so as to conform with the rules of international law are forced to argue that rules contained in treaties made by the executive government are relevant in interpreting the Constitution. It is hard to accept, for example, that the meaning of the trade and commerce power in the Constitution can be affected by the Australian government entering into multilateral trade agreements. It is even more difficult to accept, then, that the Constitution's meaning is affected by rules created by the agreements and practices of other countries. If that were the case, judges would have to have a loose-leaf copy of the Constitution. If Australia is to have a Bill of Rights, it must be done in the constitutional way, hard though its achievement may be, by persuading the people to amend the Constitution by inserting such a bill. Unquote. This is a logical or at least understandable reason for the reluctance of judges to determine whether the course taken by Parliament is unjust or contrary to basic human rights when there is no specific rendering of any human rights treaties in the Constitution itself. And it is a plea from the judiciary to the people to take the chains off the courts that prevent them from protecting people against abuses of power and rights by governments. It is also a clear statement to the effect that mere legislation is not sufficient to protect human rights. It must be done in the Constitution. Otherwise, there is no balance of power that can be achieved. No balance of power is possible if one of the powers, in this case the High Court, has no power at all under the only instrument that can give it power, the Constitution. 
The court's lesson is that only the people can solve this problem via a long overdue referendum to insert human rights into the Constitution. Over the 40 years to the 2020s, every referendum put to Australians to amend the Constitution failed. This record of defeat acted to dispirit human rights advocates from doing what Justice McHugh suggested is essential. Leading lights in the area, such as George Williams and Daniel Reynolds, have opted to fly the white flag and forsake the idea of enshrining rights in the Constitution in favour of something that is, quote, sound and achievable, unquote. In 2017, they stated that, quote, we should jettison the US model and any idea of a constitutional Bill of Rights. If that is ever to occur, it is at least a generation away. The more modest and flexible legislative approach takes into account the strong concern held by many Australians that a US-style Bill of Rights would give judges the final say in too many areas and would entrench rights in the Constitution that the community might not support in the future. Unquote. But this pragmatic capitulation is likely to leave the Australian public without the rights and constitutional protections it needs. For instance, one, as Justice McHugh has shown, the lack of a Charter or Bill of Rights means that Australian judges have no say at all. They cannot protect us from injustice by a government that might be intent on abusing human rights even if legislation like the Racial Discrimination Act is enacted that grants pieces of those rights. Two, nor is it the case that enshrining rights in the Constitution that are already supported in treaties would give judges the final say in too many areas. There is no inherent need to enshrine treaty rights in a way that would inordinately increase the power of judges over the Parliament. If that is an issue, which is unlikely, then it is simply the job of constitutional lawyers and parliamentary counsel to devise amendments that will eliminate the risk of an imbalance between the necessarily separated powers of the Parliament and the judicature. In devising such amendments, though, counsel should consider abandoning all presumptions that Parliament should have the last word on human rights legislation. As I have already suggested, it is the people who should have the first and last word on what rights they want and what obligations they will insist their governments observe. That requires nothing more and nothing less than an enshrinement of human rights in a people's constitution. Three, finally, since this whole debate about human rights has been dragging on for over 30 years with the results that rights have been eroded down to near zero... It is also time to abandon the prejudice that enshrining rights in the Constitution will lock Australians into rights the community might not support in future. This seems to imply that Australians are somehow flaky about rights that governments have otherwise stated are universal, indivisible, interrelated, interdependent, inalienable, inherent, inviolable and the common entitlement of all humans. Since Australians adopted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and progressively signed onto treaties made under the Declaration, neither the people of Australia nor their governments have suggested that the treaties need be abandoned and the rights in them are not universal and indivisible. Of course, governments have resisted enshrining them in domestic law, but that is merely a measure of the desire of successive governments not to give up power. 
It is not an indication that Australians think these rights should not be available to them. If anything, the evidence is that Australians want surety about their rights, a guarantee they will be permanent. 83% want a document that sets out in clear language the rights and responsibilities that everyone has here in Australia, and 74% agree that a Charter of Human Rights would help people and communities to make sure the government does the right thing. In summary, it is clear that Australians would be better off than they are now if human rights were legislated, but they would not be as secure from abuse of power as they would be if the rights were enshrined in the Constitution. As John von Duser observed in 2005, quote, What happened with the migration laws is being mirrored across the executive branch of government. More and more discretionary power is given to the executive, and less and less detail of conditions governing the rights and duties of individuals is stated in legally enforceable statutory provisions. It is all very well for government to say we are all protected by the rule of law and the respect that Australia accords to that core principle. However, if the regulation of our lives is not stated expressly in the law, but is a matter of discretion, what protection does the rule of non-existent law give? To give real substance to the principle, enforceable and certain rights need to be express, and this could be achieved in a Charter of Rights." Unquote. The insightful Von Dusa also made one other very important observation, which is highly relevant in the 2020s, to the issue of a treaty with First Nations. Quote, one important purpose of a human rights charter will be to protect the rights of people in minority groups. One minority group in Australia that is particularly in need of enforceable fundamental rights is the Indigenous community. Aboriginal people have advocated for a treaty, but their advocacy has fallen on deaf ears. Without debating the merits of that proposition, if there were a universal charter to protect the rights of everyone, the basic rights recognised in it would go a long way to giving protection to one community which plainly needs it." Unquote. What this indicates is that as Australia moves towards Makarata and a treaty with Indigenous nations, it is likely that the treaty itself will need to be enshrined in the Constitution alongside enshrined human rights. Otherwise, the treaty itself is likely to be unstable. And because of the specific circumstance of the need for a treaty with First Nations, those rights will need to include not just the rights in human rights treaties that Parliament has already ratified, but the rights in another treaty it has signed but not ratified, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, the UNDRIP. Unless all these rights are incorporated into the Constitution, any treaty with First Nations is likely to be as unenforceable as all the other treaties on human rights that we have signed but not enshrined in the Constitution. First Nations treaty rights will be as unprotected as all our other human rights, and the obligations of government to Australians in compliance with those treaties will be all too easily escapable. To ensure that all the rights that have been withheld from Australians since World War II and all the rights that have been so cruelly and unjustly withheld from Indigenous Australians 
are finally enforceable by the courts, Australians need a well-made people's constitution which codifies those rights. They also need a well-made constitution which codifies the obligations of governments to all Australians in the benefit and protection of those rights. This may seem like an insurmountably complex challenge, especially to those who have been understandably dispirited about the possibility of success in a referendum. As more than one constitutional expert has observed, quote, not only is the Australian constitutional system old in world terms, but it has resisted change. As far back as 1967, Australia was described by Geoffrey Sawyer as, constitutionally speaking, the frozen continent. It is an understatement to say that changing the constitution is difficult. Former Prime Minister Robert Menzies went so far as to say in 1951, after his own proposal to ban communism had been narrowly rejected by the people, the truth of the matter is that to get an affirmative vote from the Australian people on a referendum proposal is one of the labours of Hercules, unquote. Menzies, however, was a patrician from a time gone by, and while it was certainly true that Australians in the 1950s were not easily persuaded of the wisdom of proposals like banning communism, which were effectively designed to deny civil and political rights and increase centralised political power, it does not follow that Australians in the 2020s would react in the negative to proposals designed to affirm their rights. On the contrary, as long as the proposal is simply designed such that Australians can perceive a benefit to them and that the affirmation is their free choice, there is no reason to assume at the outset that Australians would reject it. And the benefit of such an affirmation would be enormous. It would consist in, one, confirmation of their rights at last in Australian law, two, protection from abuse of their rights by an unjust or arbitrary power, and three, enunciation of the parliaments and the executive government's obligations to them. The real barrier to acceptance of human rights in the Constitution would not come from the people. It would come from politicians who, under the current Constitution, have their foot firmly stamped on the neck of the people's rights and freedoms inasmuch as they can stop a referendum from ever getting started. I will discuss ways around this in Chapter 9, but for the moment I would like to concentrate on how the success of a referendum on human rights might be achieved. As I said above, the chances of success in such a reform will be increased if we can isolate a simple process for enshrining our rights. In the next section, I will pose an option for the simplest way to overcome the problem.